Hey guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with an interview with Neil, Pitt, Neil Pitts. He is uh, from the uh, UK, and we had connected through uh, Facebook and Messenger. He has written a book called Postmodernity and the Creation of the Anthropocene. Uh, basically the epoch that we're living in with uh, going through climate change and connected to uh, basically talk about the book and uh, philosophical issues around that. So Neil, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today. Hi there, James, how are you? Good. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, what's your background? Um, okay, I went to University of Leeds and got a scholarship to study physics there. Um, and while I was there, I put together a, a framework of scientific theories in terms of um, a timeline that went back into the ancient world. And I started putting bits of it together and I thought, hang on a minute, this is <coughs> what's, what's more interesting here. <coughs> <coughs> So we just had two storms hit the UK. Um, what was more interesting for me was that the, the societies that produce these theories, and I wanted to document a history of human civilizations in terms of the progress that people had made through science and how it affected the progress of those civilizations themselves. So I transferred my degree to a course in the social sciences at the University of Winchester. And there I put together a theory of historical paradigms, which explained how shifts in thinking had occurred through the ages and had evolved with these different societies. So when I was there, I happened to have as a tutor, um, the man who financed, he was the chief finance officer on the Canary Wharf Tower project in the UK. And he worked with a big Japanese bank before he became a lecturer. And, um, he was really experienced with this sort of uh, review of literature and things like that. And he put together a five point plan for me to turn it into a book. So originally it was a book called Origins of the New World Order. And it was about how the structure of civilization formed in the ancient world. And then I was going to do a second book on the Middle Ages and a third book on the modern periods. But then I ran into a publisher who said that they're interested in the idea, um, but he wanted it all as one book. So I ended up doing about as much work as I had done in the last 10 years, in about two years. And this was just recently. And um, what we did was we took the framework of the, the evolution of the empires in the ancient world, which obviously produced um, progressive civilizations, which kind of successively invaded each other and took over the, the, the generally the center ground in world affairs. Um, up until the rise of Christianity, which proposed that we needed a new vision of global civilization um, to supersede this, this series of empires. And then, so we're into the Middle Ages then, and we've got Christianity moves up into Europe and Islam in the East. And as the situation progressed, I saw the Mongols developing their empire there, and then the Europeans taking over the Americas. So it kind of led into the modern periods in, in terms of following the traditional classification of historical periods, which in the end worked out very well for me because then it took me through the modern periods, through World War I and II, into post-modernity, which would be the period since World War II, until, I, I mean, I believe 2023 is gonna be the year of the Anthropocene because that's when the geologists are proposing to prove the argument for it before the international Union of Geological Sciences. So what's the definition of Anthropocene? Right, okay, I'm, I'm, I made some notes earlier. I mean, okay, we've got, first of all, we've got the, the way that the situations evolved over time. And from a historical point of view, you've got the diachronic and the, the synchronic, and one of which the diachronic is the way that the situations evolved over time. And the synchronic is the events which go together at a particular time. So that would be what, what is contemporary. So we've got, first of all, we've got the diachronic point of view in terms of how periods of history have evolved in general. 
and how this has led to the need to create a period which supersedes the postmodern era. And that would be the where the idea of the Anthropocene came from. So then you've got the Anthropocene in terms of what it is in itself, which is, is basically, it's gonna be the period in which we address these issues like um, climate change. And not only that, um, international government are going to be taking more responsibility for people's behavior, particularly with regard to the nuclear issue. Um, and obviously all, all the kind of government agendas across the board, but in particular, the nuclear issue is the one that's being cited by the geologists as being the proof that we're at this point where we have technologically evolved beyond what we were as a, as a species um, over the last kind of 4,200 years in which we've produced all the major civilizations which have existed. During that period, we have been, th this period has been um, termed the Holocene, and it's been part of the Quaternary period in Earth's geological history. So um, really, we've got this, this situation in which society will kind of tolerate the fact that we're an evolving species, so they'll tolerate wars and, and all this kind of human, kind of like we're only human sort of stuff. And then now we have the technology to solve the problems that we have really as a species. We also have the ability to wipe ourselves out. So it's a kind of indication that we've come to a new point in terms of the way that politics has to behave and the way that nations have to behave in relation to each other. So that's really what um, is going to supersede postmodernity because if you consider the problem of post-modernity was the world that led through World War II. Um, that was really lots of different societies trying to go in different directions. And then since then, you've got the UN on a big mission to make everything kind of knit together properly and, and countries to talk to each other properly and work together. So over the last kind of few decades, really, we've been gradually entering the Anthropocene because while we've been doing this, we've been creating a new human age. So that's my my understanding of Anthropocene is the basically the man-made epoch that basically man is reshaping the planet and you know my understanding is that's been basically where we're at since really the industrial age and especially since World War II. Um, you're saying that that age hasn't begun yet that it's something we're moving into um i mean why the difference okay what you're saying is true in a, in a loose kind of understanding of the subject and i think that's one that most people can get by with but if you look at the arguments that are being proposed by the scientists and as well the the type of ideas that are floating around in terms of government at the moment you'll see that we're not quite at the point yet where we have managed to go beyond post-modernity because of the, the fact that the structure of global civilization is still suffering from the problem which came through the Cold War. So if you, if you I mean, what the, what the book's about really is, is if you look at the way that the whole situation's evolved over time, you will see, uh, it's very easy to look back into the ancient world and see the proportions in which events are evolving in, but it's not so easy to do that in today's world because we have such a big picture to look at and we have to know a hell of a lot about history in order to be able to conjecture on the size and shape of it all. So what I've done really is that I've brought the, the book takes the reader through all the stages of global civilization so there can be no doubt about how it's all evolving and the, the proportions in which each period makes its own progress in relation to what's gone before. So you can see that the, there are certain geological dynamics which become apparent if you, if you look at the structure of global civilization. And for example, in the modern period, the early modern period is when the Europeans take over the Americas and all these big European empires all come into competition over these colonial territories all over the world. So this changes into the late modern period, 
when all these raw materials that they're extracting and the empires they're building generates the industrial revolution back home. So that happens in Europe and North America primarily. Um, and that creates this thing called the European world economy from about 1600 through to about 1900. There's this period of the big European empires who control large parts of Asia, almost all of Africa. And then when that collapses into World War I, you've kind of got this new situation where Europe has imploded into itself, that the amount of money and the power that was there has, has caused a huge global war. And so where do we go from there? Okay, what have we got then? We've got the Russian Revolution, and that's when the communists become big globally and take over the Soviet Union towards the end of World War One, assisted, in fact, assisted by the German government of all people who help Lenin and um, his comrades into the Soviet, into the old Russia, and they send money and arms um, to fund the Russian Revolution. So. Russia then tries to overthrow Germany using Russian money, and that caused the rise of fascism in Europe. So then World War II is a very different state of affairs, but it's all really born out of this European world economy. Do you see what I mean? The whole modern period involves that industrial revolution, European empires. And then after World War II, you've got a very different state of affairs, which is then what becomes known as the post-modern age, because it involves the polarization of the big superpowers in the Soviet Union, in the United States. So, as far oh, hold as on, hold on, back up for a second, because you've <laughs> you've dug like ten rabbit holes to go down. So let's let's <laughs> pick one. So let's just start from the beginning. So you looked at three different periods: the ancient period, a uh, the what imperial period of empire, and then Anthropocene. So how do what lessons do you learn from the ancient period? And by the ancient period, what specific empires are you talking about in the ancient period? What specific civilizations are relevant okay. to, you know, right. what you're trying to bring to light? Okay. In, in the, okay. So starting from the very beginning in prehistory, humans evolved out of Africa and they spread across the world. They spread into Eurasia, they spread into the Americas over the Beringia land bridge. Are you familiar with this theory? Yes. That they came yeah, via Alaska. And there's all sorts of evidence now that, that proves that. And they've even dug into the seafloor beneath, um, beneath the, the water where the land bridge was. And they found all sorts of evidence there that people had crossed. So you've kind of got this, this original world order, if you like, though, where people initially spread throughout the earth. And then about 10,000 BC, the land bridge closes, and isolates the people in the Americas. So really, you've got the origins of the world order that we have today in Africa, Eurasia. So I'm looking at the way that the early civilizations have developed there through religions, through um, just from the most basic social structures in, um, in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, you know, how the, um, how the first civilization formed and then what happened to them as the larger empires of Mesopotamia grew bigger than the original um, size of Egypt, which was the first major civilization. And then following that, they were conquered by the Persian Empire and then following that, Persia had a war with, with Greece, which was taken over by Alexander the Great in response to the Persian um, aggression towards the, the Greek democracy. And so then after, after the big war between Greece and Persia, the Greek empire collapsed. Um, Alexander the Great died young. And this left Rome to be the big superpower in the West and Han China in the East kind of created the same size kind of empire yeah so, but you're you're spanning a period of like three thousand years there i mean from egypt through mesopotamia to persia to greece to rome i mean that's a huge period of time where you're not talking about like all of those civilizations having the same amount of power at each time 
No, each one was different in its own way, but each one kind of superseded the last, uh, but not just technologically in terms of in terms of ideas and in terms of the, the structure of society and its and religion. And if you consider that religion relates to the psychology of the people, mm-hmm. it means that we can, if you follow the situation from Egypt, then you can understand how these societies were created one after the next. Like in Egypt, you've got the, the Egyptian religion represented a synthesis of all the different parts of Egypt, which came together through the unification. And then in Mesopotamia, their gods were um, were a family, and they, they talk about the, the god of the brick builder and the god of the sea and the god of the mud hut and all this kind of thing. So we've got the, the sort of building blocks there for the later gods of the ancient world. Um, you know, the Greek gods were kind of aspects of the psyche, weren't they? Like war, feasting, wine, peace, love, the king of the gods, you know, the kind of aspects of human civilization. So then all these pantheons in the ancient world were taken over really by the monotheistic idea of having it all rolled into one god. So then you've got the the Middle Ages emerged out of this um, network of civilizations that appeared when Rome and Han China were the big civilizations and the war between Persia and Greece, which had effectively ended the ancient world, um, it kind of produced a new type of stability. So you've got the the Roman Empire eventually converts to Christianity, and then in the East, then you've got Islam in the 600s. So the situation, it kind of, it because of the way humans evolved out of Africa into both the Eastern um, Asia and the Western European areas to, to start with, um, you've got this sort of situation that goes back and forth between the two sides. And I don't think that's really changed. And um, so what does, what does the lessons that, what are you pointing out as far as lessons to be learned from this ancient period that's relevant to what's going on now with society moving from post-modernity to Anthropocene? Okay. Um, It's just a case of building the way that one period led to the next. So if you look at the proportions of the, the, the scale of these societies in the ancient period, Egypt is, is very small on a global scale, even though it's the biggest of its time. Mesopotamia occupies about half of what we might call the world center at the time. And then the Persian empire is the first empire to occupy the whole of the world center. And Cyrus the Great calls himself the king of all the world in the famous Cyrus Cylinder, which was a scroll found inscribed, which was found there by archeologists in, um, in recent times. So if you look at the, the, the size of this, this kind of, this, this idea we have of global civilization, you can see that it grows at every stage until we've got this, this network of huge civilizations coming after the Greece-Persia conflict. In Roman Han China, you've got a superpower in both East and West. So that situation, as it develops, then it grows into Christianity and Islam. Um, Then the Mongols challenge all this by being the huge empire in the 1200s. And this affects the, the balance of power between East and West. You know, it kind of it kind of upsets the status quo, but it also generates progress as well. And as they block the routes into Asia for the Europeans, between them, the Turks and the Mongols blocked all the land routes into Asia, which is what drove the Europeans into the Americas because they were looking for sea routes and they accidentally discovered the Americas through Christopher Columbus um, in about the 1490s. And they also sent Vasco da Gama around Africa to India to discover the Far East routes, which then became the basis for the Portuguese and the Spanish empires. Um, so after that, you know, this we're sort of in into the modern periods, if you like. So it's really about the different stages of, of global civilization. So then by the time we come to the, the end of the modern periods in World War II, 
you can look at this, this, this shape of post-modernity in terms of what we achieved, you know, what actually happened during that period. And then you can say, predict, well, so then in the next period, then we're going to evolve this much further, we think. So people should really start preparing for this sort of thing to happen. That's, that's kind of what the book's about. It's about, you know, how people could start preparing now and be pretty certain that in the next period, then we're going to make so many steps further compared to what we achieved in post-modernity compared to what we achieved in the modern periods. Hmm. So you're saying that basically it's a, it's a perpetual path forward in terms of more complex civilization, more, would you say more integrated, more larger um, organizational structures? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, one thing definitely that came out of the, the modern periods was the rise of, of democratic government and more representative forms of government, for example, because through the Industrial Revolution, there were far more offices, so you needed more offices to manage the offices. And this, this gave rise to the middle class. So you see um, a real change in the whole structure of government in the modern periods. It this is all happens. so this is all true and I, I i see what i see what you're saying but when let's just fast forward in terms of how this relates to climate change mm. and i mean the reality is this period that you're talking about historically uh throughout the last two thousand years 10,000 years has really had a period of environmental stability that allowed, you know, cities to develop in lar increasingly larger cities as agriculture, you know, took root, so to speak. But we're going into an age which is, I would say, the kind of the defining characteristic of the Anthropocene is is a lack of environmental stability, which is really gonna, I think that's not going to lead to larger organizations. If anything, it's going to lead to a breakdown of, of large organizations and countries and civilizations um, because, of the, okay, because of the disruption of the food environment where we yeah. are able to support food. I, I see what you mean. Um... I, I would say that the, the reason why all these problems are hitting us now is because during the postmodern age, we were too occupied with the problems that we had inherited since World War II and the period that led up to World War II. And um, you can see evidence of this in the UN really starting its mission um, with the aim of taking the world very quickly away from the events which had dominated the early 20th century and to take it more towards the world of our own making. So I think what's paid the price really during this period is the environment, particularly as the capitalist side of the world saw accelerated industrial development as being the key to solving the problem which created communism. Um, and this period is also known as the Great Acceleration. So the period from 1945 to the present, which scientists are proposing this is this is what created the anthropocene um they are currently putting a proposal forward that there's a group called the anthropocene working group or awg which you can google and they're on wikipedia um and all that and they're putting this proposal to the international union of geological sciences next well sort of like the end of this year um i talked to them a few months ago and they said that they've been held up by covid but what should go through is um, the, the sort of proof that we are we are now entering an age where governments need to take more responsibility and that we can start to argue this in real scientific proofs, which governments now should be thinking, yeah, we're at that point where we coped with that, that problem that came out of World War II, and now we should be really thinking about this becoming the new priority. That's that's kind of where we are. 
Well, as I agree that we need more, we need more regulation. We need governments to take responsibility for and be acting in the benefit of, you know, its citizens and global citizens and the planet. Um, I would say the other half of that coin is there's also an increasing drift towards authoritarianism, which, you know, in uh, prior to World War II, you know, Nietzsche was used as a justification for Hitler's policies of government. And so I think it's definitely there's a need for government to take responsibility, but I think you also need to be aware of negative forces taking advantage of an opportunity for their own more sinister agendas. Mm, um, okay, I agree with you there, but I think it's largely the political activists who jump on the agenda of bandwagon and trying to make trouble for government when governments are trying desperately to discuss really how we can solve problems with a world which is effectively divided between right and left in politics. So, for example, China and America do not really get on with each other in terms of discussing legislation because of the way that they discuss things in a different way. Like Britain is very much kind of has its own, each government really has its own agenda in terms of being popular with the people and winning the next election. That seems to be the, you know, the main concern of governments here. And as a result of this, a lot of, a lot of issues really are not being addressed and a lot of problems aren't being solved. There was the Paris meeting, which kind of never really reached any conclusion because nobody would really commit themselves to- Are you talking about COVID-25? um yeah yeah that's uh, yeah that's the one um basically nobody wanted to commit themselves to an agenda that somebody else could take advantage of so nobody yeah. really wanted to yeah. commit themselves to anything because of the way that other governments try to up the ante by taking um the situation forward in a way that suits them and saying oh but then oh look you'd have to do this wouldn't you oh well you know maybe if you could do that we could do this and everybody kind of really trying to get ahead of each other in terms of achieving what they wanted to achieve without really kind of committing to them to the bigger picture really so at the moment china is definitely the biggest polluter i think um and the world is going to be a bit hung up on that because if they won't change then nobody else is going to see why they have to change except for the fact that green energy might start making a lot more money um in the long run, I think people have switched to it now. And I think this is what's gonna happen is that the Western economies are gonna try and leave China behind by making the switch earlier and taking advantage of industrialization from previous periods to get ahead in terms of investment and creating the technology to switch everything like cars, um, like heating, like lighting, all this sort of stuff over to green energy. Um, and I think that might be the way. No, I mean, I think definitely the uh, the path forward is lower energy cost in the economy in order to, you know, by going to wind, solar, sea power, I think you can, you know, drive down costs for businesses and the economy and make it more efficient and in effect outcompete other countries uh, the problem is you have um vested interests that throw up roadblocks to try to stay alive um while they're in the midst of being you know driven to extinction really by heard of this i've heard of the oil the oil companies fighting back well, i mean cigarette companies yeah i mean you look at what happened in uh, glasgow uh at cop 26 i mean largely the fossil fuel companies torpedoed everything that was um going into the 
the last days and really to my knowledge nothing really came of the entire meeting which is you know sad is an understatement it's you know abysmal yeah um Greta Thunberg was accused of trying to destroy capitalism wasn't she well but let's just say capitalism is part of the really the core part of the problem you know the idea that you can have a a an economic system driven by capitalism um and you know not be polluting destroying the environment i think those those things come in conflict and there needs to be a a new economic system developed that emphasizes sustainability and actually not the profit motive but you know um the contribution to society and that's a fundamental rethinking of really what everybody does within the society hmm. do you think maybe that if it wasn't for the broader problem with the structure of global civilization then the problem of modern capitalism wouldn't be seen to be so much of what it is in the sense that it, it was really the way that the europeans took over the americas they they mixed imperialism with capitalism and they produced colonialism and this effectively it enslaved all people really it mm -hmm. didn't just you know it didn't just affect the, the colonies that people were conquering it also affected the people that had to live in these imperial societies and eventually this caused the revolution and then when the french revolution failed the communists began to claim that they had the only option which was available so then you've got the communist revolution and this the way that the situation has evolved has polarized global society on both sides so perhaps without that having happened i think that governments would have reformed a lot more over the years, I think a lot more change would have happened had we not been dealing with this at the same time. Well, I think that, um, I think the core of the problem is capitalism. And I think the, the situation that we're at now is capitalism controls the political system. And so, and the civilization. And so changes to that system you know, uh, end up getting a person attacked that, you know, you're threatening, you're threatening everybody. Um, but the reality is that that system is cancerous and it's killing the planet. And it's in, in the end, it's going to kill civilization because it's creating an environment which is unlivable for human society, for human beings. Yeah, there was a book called um, Anthropocene or Capitalocene, wasn't that? Did you have you seen that? I have not. Oh, okay. There was somebody who wrote a book about this. Um, you know about the the problem with the system and its ability to change that we have now, and the way that the world seems to be entering a new period when we actually need to take action, and now we can't take it because of the system that we've got. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you, you talk about like um, the move towards larger organizational structures and we see that continuing with capitalism, right? With larger companies buying up all the competition, basically becoming monopolies and yeah. using that, you know, vast uncontrolled wealth to basically control the political system, you know? I, yeah, I have. I have I have seen this, but can I just say that um, in terms of the 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 situation that we have now, I mean, if you're not looking at the structure of geopolitics as a whole, I know a lot of people in the West refuse to discuss Karl Marx and communism because it's it's not part of their ideology. But it is. Kind well, of I'm like an anarchist, so we can talk about it as much as you want. Okay. Well, okay. Well, I mean, globally, it's basically half of what's going on. So if you if you just talk about capitalism, we're only really talking about what's half of what's actually happening. So the way that the West is responding uh, has responded through the Cold War and to the 
um, to the evolution of communism from the Soviet Union to the Chinese Republic. Um, now we seem to have a situation where, you know, the Ukraine crisis is happening now in Europe and we're in the middle of that now in Britain. Um, Russia is claiming that NATO is expanding too far to the east and it has actually pushed all the way down to Turkey now. Um, and they're complaining about that. They were freaking out about um, Ukraine threatening to join NATO and that appears to be a reason behind the invasion which they've just launched because then they wouldn't be able to launch it if Ukraine uh, joined NATO and then they wanted us to, to, um, to put down this civil war that's been going on in the Ukraine. Um, since they overthrew their government and joined the EU, there's been a, a, a little area of Russian separatists who basically declared themselves an independent state and asked Russia for help. So that has created this situation fundamentally. But if you look at the way that NATO has pushed as far as Turkey now, what it looks like is they're trying to press China um, into a policy where they don't see expansionism as, as the solution, but as in terms of China counterbalancing US influence globally. And that's what they have gone to now with the Belt and Road Initiative in China and this investment strategy that they're trying to really be the dominant power in Southeast Asia and reach across to Africa and reach into all these areas that the US have found difficult to reach in terms of economic investment um, or governments that have been politically difficult to deal with. So you have kind of still got a polarized situation between East and West where you've got the US NATO influence all over the West and now China um, looks set to take over as the superpower in the East. I think that's affecting the what we're able to do about the environment, don't you think? Oh, no doubt. And, you know, I clearly, um, you know, China's policies are, you know, in some ways they're replicating kind of the U.S. mentality of kind of imperial diplomacy that you know, it used during the second half of the 20th century, you know, to expand its influence to other countries, whether by money or by by loans and so forth, and kind of um, really issuing debt bondage, you know, to different countries. And, you know, to try to expand its its influence. And obviously that runs counter to what, the U.S. is trying to do in terms of, you know, its own policies. Um, as far as Ukraine, I mean, the reality is you're dealing with one person who is a historical figure who is trying to reshape the world to his liking, and that's Putin. And do you think he is trying to reshape the world, though, or do you think that he is? Do, do he's trying to recreate. The, he's trying to recreate the Russian slash Soviet empire that he grew up in uh, as a KGB agent. Yeah, I think that's that's easy to say, but I I think that what the West is overlooking right now is the way that ideas have been bouncing around in the East between Russia and China all this time. Um, while NATO has been expanding. China is very dense and it's very, very big. And it's gonna take a while for ideas to bounce around, you know, to come up with this, um, this idea of counterbalancing the West rather than trying to supersede it like a, like a new period of history, you know, kind of traditionally would. And in doing the, I think in, in doing what Russia and China are doing at the moment, I think it'd be very easy to miss the point of what they are trying to achieve globally. And I think that they're working together on this. And I think China- By they, you mean Russia and China together? Yeah, they were doing yeah. joint military exercises, weren't they, in the, in the, in the Pacific quite recently? Well, I mean, um, I, think that, I think what you see there are two authoritarian countries that are, that are trying to execute their own agendas and, you know, the enemy of but the enemy, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know. Yeah, but do you, I mean, do you think so? Do you think that that perhaps if you were in China now, 
and you saw things from their point of view, it would make just as much sense to you what they were doing as if you're in America, being an American citizen or, you know, being in France, being a French citizen or being in Britain, being a British citizen, because each government explains the situation to their people in the same way, just in a different way for each country. So all of these countries really now are forming this framework of international diplomacy, but really it just all kind of works in a different way. Well, I think the the sad example of the of where things are is the example that Hong Kong was basically taken over by China. Um, you know, in Britain the past couple in the past Britain couple of what the the lease run out the lease didn't run out they took over. The lease wasn't no, due to it. run out for another 50 years. There was, had it on, there was other time. No, there was, there was a time that there was supposed to be a transition in between what they were, the, what they were after the um, British left um, until the Chinese took control. I think it was like 2040. So there was a huge amount of time that was still to come and the Chinese pushed it forward because they could see that Hong Kong was resistant to the Chinese relationship. And I followed the, the elections running up into the Chinese takeover. And you could see that at a certain point, the police officers in Hong Kong were just replaced by Chinese National Guard and Chinese Army. Yeah. Well, look, I've got it. I just Googled it here and I've got 1898. Queen mm -hmm. Victoria brokered a 99 year lease. And it was 1998 that England had to give Hong Kong back. It was a OK. When were they supposed to give it back? What was the date of the transfer supposed to be? Final transfer. It's like 1947. No. No. I'll come up with the information and, and send it over, but the, the timetable was is different than that. Okay. Well, you must have the American version of it then. All right. Well, again, each country gives its citizens its own story. Yeah, I mean that, that's what I'm trying to say. In the, the sense that if you're in China right now, I mean, I've met Muslim guys and you know, the, the, it makes sense to them what's happening in their country. And I'm thinking, how not, you know, can all that which has happened in the Middle East recently actually make sense? But it does if you consider the position of those countries in relation to the big powers. So they wanted to be non-aligned during the Cold War. And they ended up with um, the Iranian Revolution uh, taking over Iran. And they ended up basically being affected by the Cold War more than everyone else was by the end of it. So they ended up having, what was it? The, Abbas, the Arab Spring and, and then the, the, the Arab winter when all the war zones finally merged together. So, you know, it, it makes sense though. I'm not saying that, that, that they particularly agree with it, but I mean, Europe went through periods of, of having huge wars for centuries and yeah, it's just the way it was, you know, for, for ages. While China had a big stable period, Europe had a series of wars. And then Europe created capitalism, really, to solve this problem of having so many wars within itself and also for colonial territory. Well, the Arab Spring was a direct result of the increase of food prices in 2014. I mean, that was... It became you know, unrealistic for people to basically starve while food prices were so high in countries that were so poor and people finally said enough. And the, the reality is we're moving into a world with higher temperatures where that is actually going to be the norm. And that social and that social uh, violence and that, uh, political breakdown is going to be more and more common. Mm, okay.
Okay, I, I don't know. I, I kind of see that as being a bit of um, a bit of a mask, really, for for change. You know, the the, the way that the world's changing now is that um, if you think about the structure of of all these nations, really, you've got the UN saying to each of these nations, look, you're going to have to deal with this situation in in your own way, because what happened through the global war on terror was that all the countries of the world were charged with equal responsibility for global security and the well-being of citizens so the UN is saying to all of these governments you know look you know you, you're going to have the authority during this period to address the situation in, in your own way but we're going to have to shift from this bipolar cold war axis of power um, to a multipolar axis of power um, so I think I think this has shifted governments a bit towards authoritarianism and it's it's kind of cost people the feeling of, of freedom in the sense that now they want to do something about things, but their government has been given the job of taking control over the way that we're doing it. So I think that's why people are feeling a bit left out um, and in the cold about the way the world works at the moment. And this has got a lot to do with the way um, the whole situation's evolved. But well, I would say a lot hand, of the authoritarianism though stems from the control at the top from the corporations you know the corporations don't want to change but do you think the corporations really control the government i mean in the united states they do citizens united assured that i mean when you look at what's happening in terms of Biden's plan as far as build back better and the fact that really it has been torpedoed thanks to two senators that were one of them being uh, controlled by coal interests, um, fossil fuel companies, um, and the other by muddied interest in uh, drug companies. Um, Okay, you know, it's, it's fairly obvious. I don't know how it is in the rest of the world, but it's if there mm -hmm. were one law that I could change that would make a difference, it would be that. And it would be a radical difference because it would it would change the dynamics of how corporations relate politically to the government. You wouldn't have the monopolies. You wouldn't have the same abuse of labor. You wouldn't have the same uh, abuses in terms of the environment and environmental law. Yeah, I'm just trying to think what, what somebody in China might say that we can't have change because of the way that the the, the government is addressing, is is controlling the the politics of who gets elected and, um, you know, who gets selected for government. So the people never really ever have a voice in government and... A normal person could never get elected because they would never be seen as being good enough for the Communist Party. So, you know, that's why <laughs> perhaps globally people are thinking that the whole idea of this workers' revolution is, is losing its point, really, because it's become kind of worse than the problem itself, even though over time it's, you know, the, the problem's been addressed and, and workers in the West, you know, eventually got, you know, leisure time and better hours and better pay and all this sort of thing um wait say so, i don't i i miss i don't understand that at all so you're saying that the revolution uh failed uh, because workers got you know two days off um you know why bother with revolutions at all is that what you're saying um well, kind of yeah um i mean the, the, the reason the revolution happened in the first place was because people were really starving. But then over time, I mean, I guess maybe the, the communism made its point because it put pressure on Western governments to reform and it, it helped a lot. Well, to, be, to be honest, communism, uh, if you're talking about the Soviet Union, that really wasn't communism. That was authoritarianism. OK, you know? but it's still it's still it put pressure on Western governments and it created what ended up happening really after that was a mixed economy globally in terms of a mixture of capitalist and socialist policies. And that's really kind of what needed to happen as a solution. But now we've got, I think now that the rise of China is making it so complex that it's kind of 
almost impossible now to consider the implications of the complexity of it. I mean, China is is so big; it's got about a million people, and next, uh, sorry, billion people, and then next to you, you've got India with another um, another billion or so people. So I think the politics of that has changed the way that the world works incredibly in the post-Cold War period. So if you like, the, the period involving communism, we can understand from the modern period, we can understand the workers' revolution and the, and the need to get more rights and establish that. And I think that has pushed the Western capitalists into having to kind of strip down their, their methods to the point where they are forced to work together. And I think that's what's caused the, the rise of the big corporations. And it's not really the fact that they control the governments. I think the governments really would like to represent the interests of everybody. And the, the big corporations are really kind of in a, in a bit of a desperate situation, really, even though they're making a lot of money, they're also having to dedicate their whole lives to their jobs. And um, people that work for them, you know, have to work in a very intense, high pressure environment. So they, they haven't really got a very good deal out of it all. I think the workers have actually- No, got but the corporations are quite happy with it. You know, they're skiing behind their three yachts and they're sitting on their piles of billions while, you know, the majority of the 99%, you know, are only, only living in fear top. yeah but only the very top um people you know not the i mean most managers are kind of pretty broke yeah i would most say and managers. a lot of management is going to be eliminated with what's going on with ai you know a lot of changes will come in terms of the workforce because of what's going on with ai and how people get monitored and you know the whole work from home mentality. Yeah, so what do you think of the rise of sorry, entrepreneurial capitalism? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, it's a good thing for people to be entrepreneurial. I think that, um, I think that that can be a path to success, but the reality is that it's not a level playing field and well, the apparently um all the i mean a lot of the billionaires which have become rich out of entrepreneurial i mean i'm talking about not not like the old investment capitalism which was which is all the money that's come from imperialism colonialism the big corporations you know not not those guys but the guys who've um identified a gap in the market like uh, amazon you know and started their own business and grown the business through their own hard work and employed more people and made a lot of money. So, I mean, the rise of entrepreneurial capitalism as opposed to investment capitalism, it seems to have created a new, uh, a new type of identity really in the Western economy and something that workers are kind of now more, in, instead of aspiring to a promotion, they're more aspiring to work for somebody for a bit to learn their trade and then start their own business. So do you think that-, that Well, I don't think the there's a lot of Amazon drivers running around um, my town, you know, planning on how they're gonna start their, their own enterprise. I think they're, you know, trying to keep from getting fired by Amazon. Um, yeah. as, far as, as far as, you know, that goes, you know, there are, the reality is that capitalism before the 1970s, um, are you familiar with the work of Robert Heilbrunner? Mm, I, you have to remind me. He's a, he was an economist. I think he was in uh, the New York, uh, in the New School. Um, but uh, he wrote a book in the 60s titled The Limits of American Capitalism. And it basically talked about how capitalism had multiple stakeholders, um, not just business, but labor and government and um, society. And that capitalism worked well when all those stakeholders worked together in 
cooperation and respect. And what happened in the 70s with the rise of Milton Friedman was the rise of stake was the rise of shareholder capitalism and shareholders basically became the only stakeholder that was paid attention to and that is that's the problem that we have is that's the system if we were to go back to a a mode of operation that actually respected those other stakeholders where an Amazon was paying a living wage for all the different people that, you know, it, um, you know, respected the environment and, you know, took care of uh, society. If you look at, for example, Walmart in the United States, it, it's by and large, the, a lot of the employees of Walmart, even though they work full time, don't make enough and they get government benefits because they're living in poverty. So you're working yeah. full time, not making enough to live on, but the government is subsidizing the corporation by paying for those employees. I mean, what's the deal? You know, they're making enough money because it shows up on their balance sheets as profits, yeah. but they're not willing to support the rest of the society and, you know, really invest in what they need to do to get their own ship lined up with where the planet needs to be. Yeah, I, I do see what you mean. Um, okay. What I'd say about that was that the, the, um, if, if you consider this, the state of polarization with, with uh, communism capitalism, I think that capitalism is always trying to evolve out of the state that it's in, but it, to, to, to maybe half an extent, it's being trapped in the situation by the polarization itself. So while a lot of people see the, the rise of entrepreneurial capitalism as being the solution to the problem with capitalism as it attempts to enter a new phase, I think that you've still got half of the system trapped in the same problem of the way that the situation um, had evolved in the first place. Yeah. Do you, do you see what I mean? So governments are now recognizing the fact that this is a problem and that they are being forced to recognize the rights of these workers that are now trapped in this problem while the, the corporations... I particularly well, I, no I think that's an overstatement to say that the governments are recognizing the, the facts that workers are, are being over, you know, abused. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't see that. I see that, you know, maybe a few people speak up about it, but, you know, there really isn't anything being done. Um, proof is, you know, Biden ran on a campaign to do um, Medicare for all as a way to cover everybody in terms of health insurance. Um, yeah. You know, that went nowhere because yeah, of the political barriers, um, yeah. you know, in, in Congress. So, I mean, the, the way that I think, I mean, I'm in Britain at the moment, and the way I, I would guess people here would, would see it is that the, the big corporations are the ones that provide uh, funding for presidential campaigns and stuff, and they kind of keep the feeling of, of what it is to be American, to be, you know, that the institution of America, you know, which is, uh, I mean, I suppose, you know, the government and the the sort of patriotism and all that um and and that this because this situation is being held up by the the money from really from big business then you've got the opportunity for the economy to grow with you know in terms of people developing their own businesses um and it's also that you know, i mean obviously you've got the military and you've got all these kind of other institutions which involve certain people who I think they see themselves as being the backbone of the United States, really, and, and keeping keeping it, um, you know, kind of free from the, the political maybe kind of elements that would seek to undermine it. So um, I, don't, I don't know, you, you know what I mean? Like the, the whole Cold War thing, really, again. But, you know, to a certain extent, there is this need to perpetuate the, the, the continuity in 
nations and a certain kind of group maybe they'll go to the same colleges you know maybe their parents went to school together but you know they all seem to know each other and they seem to to form a kind of group if you like the the environmentalists form a group and the you know the left wing tends to form a group um in terms of criticizing capitalism i think a lot more should be done about criticizing the problems with capitalism like it was in the old days and and you know finding ways for governments maybe where they could help uh the people and i think you know definitely yeah subsidizing workers wages it does not sound fair on the government but it does recognize the fact that the corporations are a situation that's not going to go away i think no because right now they control the game and that's really the problem when it comes to you know at the end of the day dealing with the climate situation and making progress in terms of avoiding uh, worst case scenarios in the next couple of decades. I mean, I think we're pretty assured for another couple of degrees rise just because, sorry about that. Just because I think we're assured of a couple of degrees rise just because uh, we're not addressing the need to cut back on CO2 and fossil fuels. As a matter of fact, the Ukraine crisis is kind of case in point of, you know, a crisis comes along and the first call that goes out is we have to drill more, we have to get more oil. And, you know, but the reality is if we actually, if the first call were we need more solar panels, we need more windmills, you know, we wouldn't be in you know, a lot of the economic duress um, because of the rise in oil and prices, you know? Yeah, yeah I, yeah, I agree with that. So where, um, your uh, book, uh, where can uh, people find your book? Okay, well, at the moment, we're launching it in the UK and it's uh, at Waterstones, it's with the Dynasty Press and the publishers. Um, so I've got Lady Colin Campbell as my YouTube advisor. Do you know, um, you know that woman who was on? No. Um, no. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. She was like an, she's like an English kind of countess, you know. Okay. Um, so she's quite famous. So she's um, she's one of the joint heads at Dynasty Press. So you get it from them, I suppose. If you buy it from them, then they get all the money. If you get it through Waterstones, do you have Waterstones in the US? I'm not sure, but if you send me the link, um, I will add it to the description um, when I okay, put it I'll, out. Okay, I'll send. Okay, I'll send anything. Um, what is, I mean, all the all. The, I think you can get it in Australian bookshops. I'm sure you can get it in America, but just Google the name, really. Okay. Um, if people want to reach out to you to uh, talk about this more, uh, do you have an email? I have. I do. I do have an email. I have a Facebook page. Um, I have a website as well. Can I give you the address yeah. of my website? Yeah. It is. What's the website? Okay, it's Neil Pitts, N E I L P I T T S dot website two dot me. M E. And that's got, that's got all my interviews on it. That's got links to my YouTube channel. Um, and in that, really, I'm talking about the, you know, the idea in the book and what people are. I mean, like we've just been talking now really about how people see the world today and what people could be doing to prepare for what is coming in terms of political um, economy. And I mean, not just that, but kind of changes in attitude and changes in the way people live, you know, so that people don't get any big shocks or people don't start going in the wrong direction. Um, so what do you think people should do in terms of where the age is moving to? Okay, well, at the moment, really, it is a question of finding the right direction for ourselves. So, I mean, really, it's a case of, of keep on going, doing what we're doing, but, you know, just bear in mind, things are going to go this way. Um, and that's because, um, it, it's not just because you could say the structure of um, global civilization, but you could say because of the fact that the world has to work in a particular sort of way. It means that if we work with that, then we can put ourselves in a much better position. 
And if we work against that, then we start getting into all sorts of problems, which we might never get out of. So I think if people start understanding that, that's the first thing that we have to do to make this step into the Anthropocene is to recognize what's really happening in the world. And a lot of that is political, and a lot of that has evolved out of the past and the way that the whole situation's evolved and the way, of course, people now in government are talking about the way that we're going to solve this problem. So I think if you become aware of that, and the computers have got a lot to do with the way that I think the, the reason why governments really aren't panicking about it is because they can do everything on computer now. Um, so that there is this kind of integrated um, way that governments are working together now, and it's got a lot to do with the way that computers are enabling them to share complex information. And this goes together with the UN, as I said, in terms of the way that governments are sharing an idea of how we are managing the situation. So that's, that's what I'm saying really is, is it's about, you know, kind of, if you, if you get into learning about this, then you'll see what governments are doing and what the problems are in different countries and really how you can put yourself in a better position in relation to what is happening now. Very good. So um, I appreciate your taking the time. And, um, you know, I think this is something we should talk about some more. I mean, I think it clearly there's a lot to uh, to drill into. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. When, when do you want to send me a text? Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch and, uh, you know, in a couple of months we'll, uh, we'll link back up and we'll, uh, we'll do another round. Okay. So could we get All any right. public, could we get any feedback from the public? Well, hopefully we'll get some, uh, some response in terms of when I post the, uh, post the, uh, interview. So okay. I look forward to, uh, hearing from people and uh, getting their take on uh, on what we talked about but thanks okay. again for talking and uh, we'll do it again yeah we could ask answer their questions on the next episode sounds good i'll talk to you soon okay see you soon thanks a lot thank you